I like to consider myself a lowbrow snob. A lowbrow snob. Like, like not to the level of Troll 2 is a great movie, man. Like, no, no, it's not. <laughs> and, and your book was fantastic. But all right, so enough kissing your butt. We'll get into all that. <laughs> yeah. Hey, everybody. This is Christopher Talon, host of Creative Ops, a podcast for creative people. I applaud you for being one of those people and listening right now because I interviewed TJ Tranchel last week. He edited my book that'll be coming out soon. But on top of that, what you're probably more interested in is he has four books of his own. He lives in Washington State with his wife and son where he currently is writing more stuff that he'll talk about He's writing a novelization of a movie that I guarantee you know, even if you haven't seen, everyone in America knows that it's a classic. But he'll get to that later. I don't want to step on it and spoil it. And we talked a lot about his book, Tell No Man, which is a Mormon dispossession story similar to many of the Catholic exorcism stories you've heard. But uh, yeah, this one's got a little bit of a Latter-day Saint spin on it. TJ grew up in Utah in the Mormon church, and he talks about that and how that plays into some of the subject matter of his writing. But we talk about a lot of things. He's also an actor. He acts on the stage. He is a professor at a community college. And then he does all the cool stuff that we talk about writing-wise as well. And also some of his writing services that he has available to you if you're a writer and you need an editor. Maybe he's your guy. I talk all about what a good editor he is. Uh, not just like in the in the, the basics of editing, but in dealing with a writer because he is one and uh, he knows what it feels like to be vulnerable in that way. So he's a good man, good editor, good actor, good teacher, and you're about to hear it all, baby. Sorry, that was what happens when I try to sound cool. I'll never do it again, I promise. All right, everybody. So here you go. Buckle up. We're going to talk to TJ Tranchel. I'll see you on the other side. town in Utah and it's a Mormon family so we had 12 kids the younger set of them at the time worked at the theater so my mom and my aunts worked to the concession stand a couple of my uncles ran the projector my grandpa booked all the films occasionally he and my grandmother would get to preview films so essentially that's where I grew up was in the movie theater yeah my cousins and I, we would sit either in the front row, sometimes laying down on the sticky floor, which now <laughs> I think about is just really gross. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and watch the movies. And it didn't matter whatever it was. Um, also, again, this was small town Utah, so there weren't like a bunch of R-rated movies. Yeah, it was yeah. all, you know, family appropriate generally. Well, because I went to a school that was um, pretty diverse in terms of, just having a lot of religions represented, I guess it wasn't super racially diverse, but there was a a good chunk of kids from the 
um, I'm saying it right, LDS church, right? Yes. Yeah. From the LDS church. And I made friends with a few of them and they brought me to church with them a couple of times. And I was like, okay, that's cool. But the biggest things that I remember from, um, from that was like, they can't watch rated R movies and they can't have caffeine. So it was like a lot of Sprite and a lot of Sprite and root beer. Yeah. Yeah. Sprite and root beer. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, some of those things have changed and evolved. Yeah. Which is weird to me when you grow up with such huge restrictions yeah. And then all of a sudden it's okay. Right. It's just weird. But yeah. the R-rated movie thing, my grandpa loved Sylvester Stallone. Oh, and so yeah. 80s Stallone was pretty much all R-rated movies. The only R-rated movie he ever played at the theater while he was the manager was Rambo, First Blood Part Two. And so that's probably the first R-rated movie that I saw. Cause like, well, I'm gonna it's at the theater, it must be okay. I'm gonna watch this movie. And, and that, spent, that movie was like set in movie uh, movie records for most deaths in a movie and stuff, right? Yeah, it's <laughs> hyper violent. Yeah. And so I spent that summer wandering in my neighborhood with the fake plastic knife and the little <laughs> fake jade figurine necklace and no shirt on. Yeah. The headband and the whole deal chasing people, which was crazy. <clears throat> But as far as first passion goes, it was definitely the movies. You know, that's where I learned storytelling and learned how people react to stories. Yeah. So that's really what started it for me was seeing those reactions. Like people are scared. People are happy. I bet I could do that. Yeah. Yeah. Having just, just seeing an audience react because I had something when I was probably like a sophomore or a junior in high school that I turned in that was uh, like a historical nonfiction because that sounded more interesting to me than, or, uh, I'm sorry, a historical fiction piece um, around the Holocaust. And I turned that in instead of, you know, everybody else just chose to write in, like a normal essay. And the teacher read it in front of the class and people started crying. And I was like, whoa. And that was the first time I was like, maybe I shouldn't just throw away all these things that I'm writing down. <laughs> it's such an incredible feeling when you know something like that happens. Yeah. I had a similar thing when I was in middle school seventh or eighth grade probably maybe eighth or eight or ninth even um we had an assignment write what you would do if you knew you were going to die the next day and i basically that's some pretty intense shit for a kid that age right (laughs) and i basically hated everyone that i was around at that time so i wrote just this absolutely brutal essay about telling everybody off and spending the rest of my time just watching movies and they could basically all just go to hell and leave me alone. Yeah. And when the assignment was due, I had, we had turned them in and then I was sick and I missed a day of school. And that's the day the teacher decided to read these papers. And so she read my paper when I wasn't there without my permission. And to hear afterward, just kind of how shocked people were they really shouldn't have been because they were all kind of <laughs> assholes to me and so it shouldn't have come as that much of a surprise that that's what i thought of them but hearing that secondhand even still was still pretty nice to yeah. know that i could write something and really get a rise out of people yeah well especially that kind of moves into the kind of writing that you've done well especially tell no man is the book of yours that i read and that book is 
it almost does the same kind of a thing to an audience. Like it's kind of a, a visceral uh, kind of book. And uh, I don't know. Do you think that your style was kind of born in that moment or? I think so. It might have been in that knowing that words can get a reaction. Yeah. And the reaction doesn't always have to be joy. Yeah. <laughs> to say the least. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be oh, look how great this is. We all love it. Yeah, it can yeah, also yeah. be, oh, my God, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah. And that book in particular, because I put so much like, of my own family and church history into it. Yeah. I love that kind of reaction. Like, so you used this piece from a real story and this piece that's made up. And it's the same thing um, with my first book called Cry Down Dark, where I took sort of a real situation and completely fictionalized it using yeah. pieces that were 100% true and building a fiction around it. Right. And having the people who knew the true stories still react and go, oh, my God, I, could, I can't believe you took it there. And yeah, yeah. Wow, that was really great. A great way to process that. Because that first book is a grief book mm -hmm. about a friend of mine who died of a brain tumor in her early 20s. Oh, and man, that so sucks. I'm sorry. It was pretty rough on me as well. Um, yeah, because we I mean, friends. I'm guessing you were both about the same age. That's, yeah, again, we're, we're talking about heavy stuff for kids to deal with. That goes to a whole different level. Right. Well, and I kind of have had that my whole life. But in this particular situation, this friend, we were very close. I wanted to be a little closer than we ever were. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, she got married. I moved around the country a bunch. And then she got this brain tumor and she died. Mm. And so that book was very much me processing grief. Yeah. And so it's scary, but it's also heartbreaking. I get more people saying that they cried their eyes out reading it than that they were scared yeah. but then those things still go together because if you're not as terrified as you can be in that moment of what's going to happen to this guy then the sad part doesn't really mean anything yeah. now, if it's just sad he's just a whiner and yeah. a complainer instead of like something might actually happen to him because of this grief yeah well it's it's funny that you say that, like the two go hand in hand, sadness and just outright like terror, because I think a lot of the books that I've read that really kind of gave me the chills and like I got the chills again just thinking about them later weren't really books that smashed you in the face. Was I mean, they do a little bit, but it's just those little those little brainworms where you go, man, that one image or that one thing that that kid said. Or that one thing that almost happened to them. Oh, you know? But yeah, the times not, that not even, away. And not even that, but just... Uh, well, I'm trying to think of specifically one book. And I keep thinking Misery, but not Annie Wilkes. Um, <laughs> no, 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 no. Dolores Claiborne. That book... I don't know if you've read that one. Yes. But um, yeah, that one isn't as outright horrifying as it just really is kind of sad like it just shows you yeah. pretty much all the bad <laughs> it's sad and it's it's at the same time again it has that feeling of truth yeah 
like, yes, this is a fiction, but there's still so much truth in it that this could happen. Yeah. And many of the situations in that book, unfortunately, have happened to people. The, yeah. the abuse and the dementia in the elderly, you know, there's a oh, lot yeah. of issues in that book and they're all true issues. And yeah. so being able to take that kind of real life stuff and create something that can not only engage an audience, but hopefully maybe help them through their own situations or even to recognize them later. So for example, one of my favorite writers is Chuck Palahniuk. Mm. And I read his book, Invisible Monsters, which deals with a lot of LGBTQ and trans issues. And so a couple years after I had read that, one of my best friends from high school that I hadn't seen since high school um, tracked me down, called me. She was transitioning. And so getting this call out of the blue, I knew a little bit more how to react and handle it because of this other fictional story. Yeah. Yeah. And that's So, cool. you know, fiction can teach us and should teach us, it, you know, entertainment, you can learn from it. Oh it yeah. Ha- for sure. Have to be just for fun. Sometimes it is just for fun, but even you're, le- you're learning from that as well when things yeah. are just for fun because you're learning what brings joy to your life. Yeah. Well, I feel like even just to take it kind of somewhere else, I read the book, um, Pirate Latitudes by Michael Crichton, the novel they found that was like fully completed after his death. And I feel like I know more about life in the time of pirates <laughs> from that book than any documentary or something that I might have read in school or a blurb on Wikipedia. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, but because a guy like that also has like 300 references in the back of his book that he references throughout his novel. Right. Well, his research, like he was a research writer, he was a doctor. He had a medical yeah. degree, which, which made, um, he also, a lot of people don't realize, uh, he created the TV show ER. Yeah. It was a Michael Crichton product, right? And so yeah. that level of scholar, academic work went into the fiction. That's why Jurassic Park sounds so real. And yeah. you know, if you look at that now and you go, oh, it took them three gigantic one terabyte computers to code the DNA for the dinosaurs. I have a terabyte of storage on my laptop now. Yeah. It's like (laughs) the advancement of technology, but then being able to look back and go, that guy knew things were going to come down the pipe. You know, he was aware enough to be like, shit's going down. It may not be exactly like what I think it is, but something's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah, he loved to write about just cautionary tales of where science is headed and where where it shouldn't be headed. Yep. Speaking of research, what kind of research goes into a book like Tell No Man? Because I'll I'll give my quick setup and if I miss anything you can add. <laughs> Two priests have a exorcism experience that goes badly and then years later they get a chance to do it again and yeah <laughs> yeah that's pretty accurate i, d- um, I don't want to give too much away so i don't <laughs> i don't want to like slip and tell everybody how it ends right they are lds so there is a level in the lds hierarchy that is a priest which 
is weird, but it's yeah, not. I said Catholic priest because priest. here That's I am we're used to. with my Catholic background and yeah. also every exorcism story I've ever seen was Catholic church. Yeah. And so that's a, so there goes my bias. I got to challenge that's my privilege an, over here. Right. That's an accurate similarity, right? That's roughly the situation these two men are in, right? So the beginning of the story, they're missionaries. So they're like 19 and 20. Um, the LDS church sends out young men and women at that age around the world from everywhere to gain converts, to convert people to the church, right? So yep, the black ties and the short sleeve shirts, right? Exactly. Yep. So these two men at the beginning of the story are in Chile and have a demonic encounter. And then again, when they're old, when they're in their 60s, they get to experience it again. And they're like yeah. the only people who like really know what's going on. Um, yeah. What's interesting. Because is, it is so like, hush, hush, we don't talk. There's, that's not really a thing kind of attitude yeah. in the church. And that's what's great about this particular story is because I knew it was a thing. And so people that like, I'm starting to write the book and people ask me, well, what are you working on? I said, well, I'm writing this book about Mormon exorcists. And the first question always is, well, is that even a thing? Yeah. And I would say, yes, but I don't really have anything solid to confirm that like i don't have documentation i don't have anything other than some personal experience to make this a real thing and so being somewhat of an academic i love research i love ebsco host and databases and google scholar and all that kind of stuff and so every few weeks i would type in my search terms mormon exorcists just to see if there was something and as I'm getting close to the end of the book, I do this search again, and then something pops up. In December 2017, I'd been working on the book for about a year. A professor in Cleveland, Cleveland State, named Stephen Taysom, published A History of Exorcism in the LDS Church, from the first prophet Joseph Smith all the way up to 1977. I like the height of the exorcist kind of popularity. Yeah, yeah. Initial popularity. And the guy involved in that is actually still a leader in the church, which is pretty fascinating. Huh. And so now I had this whole history of like, yes, it's a thing. Here it is. And so it was from this guy that I got that word dispossession, which is yeah. what is used more often because LDS people and officials don't like being compared to the catholics he's like no not too many people do <laughs> yeah even though they've had the some LDS, pretty bad pr as of late the lds church is probably the most like the catholics of any christian adjacent religion yeah you think so i do because they're both about amassing wealth i mean if that's <laughs> not what they're about they've done it by accident yeah right so the similarities are there, but they don't like to use as many of the same words and things like that. Yeah. Um, they're like all the still... British and the English would just, uh, we'll just take the U out of some words. Exactly. Like there's <laughs> enough subtle changes. Yeah. And so once I had that document, that scholarly work, and I talked to the guy and I made him a character and all kinds of stuff. 
um, I had something more to go on and something much more real than just a personal story to turn into fiction. Yeah. So I, I love, I love that kind of research. Yeah. Yeah. Cause even, even I found, I, I originally was going to have like two different things going on other than just, uh, the one thing that was afflicting people in, in the book that I was writing. But, uh, even though I just narrowed it down to the one, all the research that I did for the other one just gave me so many other ideas. So even research that doesn't really get used, doesn't really go unused. It still right. makes your brain light up when you, when you see things go, Oh, I never thought of that. And it could come up later. Yeah. You can use it for something else. Yeah. Like yeah. You find stuff that's like, well, that's really interesting. I can't use that right now. I got to yeah. focus on this. You know, don't delete anything, right? It's like, this goes over here in this folder and mm. I'm going to forget about it for a while. Yeah. But something else is going to come up and then I'm going to remember this other thing. Like, oh yeah. Yeah. That's what I need to do. So some yeah. of the other things that like. And that's up, just great writing advice to anybody. Don't really just throw is. stuff away because you might write something down look at it right after the fact with your over analytical brain and go, Oh, that's no good. Rip, throw it away. Just let it sit. Let it simmer. Yep. Well, it's the same thing. Like I said, I teach college courses. I teach college English. Yeah. And I have students do an annotated bibliography, like any source that you look at, whether it goes into your paper or not, keep track of it. Yeah. Make that list, make your short summary. Why are you using it? Why are you not using it? keep it because it may come up later yeah and that's happened more times to me than i can count honestly and sometimes it's things that you don't think are going to come back up like i use a lot of true crime stuff in some of my stories and you never know what kind of news incident you can go oh i need to use that so for example in my work in progress Early in the pandemic, there was an earthquake in Utah uh-huh. that knocked the statue of the angel Moroni off of the temple in Salt Lake. Um, the trumpet fell off of it. Ooh. The whole statue didn't come down, just like the trumpet part yeah. fell off of it. If you've ever seen an LDS temple, there's this big golden statue on top. This guy blowing his horn. Huh. And in church prophecy, because they did this kind of stuff. There was a thing that one of the signs of the end times would be that the trumpets would fall from these angels. And so you can imagine a bunch of people kind of freaking out a little bit. Yeah. And the church officials are really cagey about that because at one level you go, well, you want them to believe the old prophecies from their religion. But at the same time, they're like, well, no, it was pretty old and we knew we would need to get up there and fix some stuff anyway. So like they use this as an opportunity to do a bunch of refurbishing and restoration on the Salt Lake Temple. Like, no, no, it's okay. It was just old. It didn't have anything to do with that prophecy that said, you know, end of times when everybody's got this weird disease and we're locking down. So (laughs) they're very cagey. (laughs) about that kind of stuff (laughs) 
book, Tell No Man, is right around like 200 pages, right? Somewhere yeah. like 180. Yep. So how long did it take you then from the time you started writing that to the time that you got everything like, oh, now I got what I need. It's it's done. And um, also kind of take me through what your day to day process is like, because for me personally, I write everything on a yellow pad and then I type it later. But everybody's got their own own way. My day to day process is definitely not day to day anymore. Unfortunately, um, the process for that particular book is that I wrote the prologue section in October and November of 2016. Mm-hmm. and actually got that prologue section published as a short story on its own. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Almost right away. And I sat on it, and I just loved it so much. And it's like, I have this other story that's percolating, and, well, guess what? This just happened to be the beginning of it. So, okay, so now I have my entry point. And so I finished the book in April of 2019. At the time, the week that I finished it, uh, one of my uncles died, my oldest uncle. Mm. And so I got to go back to my hometown and I went and took a bunch of pictures of places that I had set things in the book because I hadn't really been back in town since and to just kind of jog it all. And so I finished the draft and with a bunch of revisions. I often revise as I go, not always, but sometimes. Yeah, That's actually the best writing process description for me. Not always, but sometimes. So I finished the draft that week um, and I had had a pitch for it, like knowing that I was almost done and had pitched it to a new publisher, which turned out to be the same person who published the short story. This particular publisher was like, I'm going to do books now. Oh, cool. The magazine that had two issues and closed. So I was a little bit wary. I was like, okay, contract looks solid. We'll do it. And so I got all of the their revisions done, all of the material done. We were going to publish it in 2020. And like we were finalizing things in January 2020. And then in February 2020, right before the second book from the press was going to come out, he closed. <laughs> Heartbreak, right? That It was so close. Yeah. And so I had this finished thing so two less than two and a half years from first word to final draft on that which is significantly faster than my first book which i spent 10 years from first sentence to publication on so i get faster i'm still not fast but i'm faster so then i sent it out to a couple different places i got this really great momentum from the first book in October of 2020, while I was still waiting on other publishers that I'd sent Tell No Man out to. And it's like, I got to seize this momentum. Um, what had happened out of the blue, that first book of mine, Cry Down Dark, ended up on a New York Times list where they did one book, one scariest book for every state in America. So like, oh, nice. and it wasn't like a writer from there. It was specifically a book set there. So there was a Stephen King book, The Outsiders, set in Oklahoma and The Shining, set in Colorado, even though he's not from there, and different stuff like that, right? Yeah. And so mid-October 2020, I'm laying in bed. I'm slowly waking up. 
and I get a bunch of Twitter notifications. Have you seen this list? Have you seen this list? I'm like, oh, cool. Another list of every popular book. Right. Great. I'll go scroll through this. And I scroll yeah. down and I see Texas, Joe Lansdale. I see Utah, TJ Tranchel. I see Vermont, Peter Straub. And I went, wait, what? I, I got to go back. What? How did the fucking New York Times find my book? Can I say fuck? Is that okay? Oh, yeah. I'm like, how did they find my book? Like, most of the people who, at that point, who had bought the book were either friends and family or people that I met at a convention in Seattle. Like, that was the circle of my publication so far at that point. I'm shocked, absolutely shocked. And it's like, yeah, I reach out to a couple of the people that the other book Tell No Man is sitting with, and I tell them this: like, I got this thing. Where are you with my book? We don't know. Like, okay, I got to pull it. I could self-publish this because I got to seize this momentum. And yeah, so that's yeah. how I ended up doing that. So, and then it came out in February 2021. So it's been out for a year now. So, your writing process on that was. A lot more during the summers, like I would go out at night and write. Um, I wrote a lot of that to film scores, which was interesting. Um, oh, in yeah. the past, I've done like playlists, but this one I did mostly the score of Sinister and Insidious and those kind of mm. Bloomhouse horror movies, which was yeah, a lot yeah. of fun. And so it kind of has that sort of, if I be so bold it has sort of that bloom house and a24 kind of feel because that's what i was listening to when i wrote most of it so my process is not a process i wish it was (laughs) and i will preach process especially to newer writers just so that they can get into it and know what they're into but mine is spotty as hell i will have a month where i write every day and then a couple months where I write a couple times a week. And that's mostly not because I don't want to, but just because of life. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, I feel you. Cause I, I used to teach middle school and <laughs> grading papers. Ho- hopefully yours were a little bit higher caliber than the ones I was reading, but grading papers, man, that, that takes a long time. It does take a long time. And it does doesn't get easier no matter the level you are it still takes that time because you want to give feedback and all that kind of stuff so it's even still if takes you don't think time. they're going to use it you still want to give it <laughs> well in my situation you know you never know when you might have a department chair or say hey show me something like yeah i got something to show you <laughs> here's here's a student's feedback and you're like and some students you know want more feedback than yeah. others and the strange thing is it's usually the ones who don't need as much help that want it i yeah, don't know if you yeah. saw that but so that's a lot of fun so <laughs> so i get to kind of walk around like a little bit of a a big shot but you know a big shot without an ego you know so i'll tell my department leads and my dean every time i got something new coming up and like oh that's great you're making us proud and like give me a raise <laughs> me a full-time professor adjuncting is great because i don't have to go to meetings 
but yeah there's no guarantees <laughs> yeah that's true so do you get a pretty full schedule of classes as of right now or uh how much of your time are you actually spending on campus Right now, I only have one on-campus class and three online. Um, I've been at well. The, I would, I would, I would consider that you know virtual yeah, campus, right? Yeah. Um. So most of my day during the day is still that right now. Yeah. But I don't do um, Zoom courses or anything like that mm. um, because I all of my classes when they got turned online, um, I figured out pretty early that I had a student body that had experienced wild changes in employment mm. and had to take shifts whenever they could. Mm. And they wouldn't necessarily, even as much as they wanted to be able to say, I need this hour every day at this time. Like mm -hmm. you kind of have to take the work that you can get yeah. in the situation that we've been in. So I do my stuff asynchronously. I put up a lecture on our learning management page every day and communicate via email and things like that. So I don't yeah. hold class necessarily. There is mm -hmm. class and they learn, but we're not zooming. You know, I don't have 20 people on zoom staring at me taking notes while you lecture. Yeah. Yeah. All the, all the notes are there on the yeah. canvas page. So I think that has worked out like that style is not for every student. Yeah. You well, know, I mean, I remember students. modeling some or not modeling, but uh, well, I mean, I guess they kind of call it like a model run or whatever. Some um, integrated technology stuff where we just kind of like skipped the lectures and it was more or less me starting them for five minutes. And then the kids would just interact with more online resources while they had, you know, that school, all the kids had computers. But yeah, you know, like I said, that's not for every student. Some students need that in person. And uh, like right now, when I started at the school I'm at, the quarter that I began ended with the lockdowns. So like our finals week and all that went yeah. out the window. And so everything went online for a long time after that. This is the first quarter that I have an in-person class again since March 2020. Yeah. And, and I had a kid in, in college uh, and they just kept sending them like new notices uh, we're going to try to get back to class when we can, but we're going to push it back another three months. Right. And I'm guessing that my, as a faculty, you probably didn't get any more <laughs> uh, of an educated update than, uh, well, we're doing the best we can. I, I actually did. My school has been really great. Like they were proactive in saying this for like the spring quarter, the first spring quarter of the pandemic was really like, we don't know what we're going to do. Yeah. And then they said, because we don't know what will happen the entire next academic year will be online yeah it doesn't matter what's going to happen we are going to say this is what's going to happen here we will yeah. be completely online for this academic year because i can say for you know the couple of kids that i saw that that was pretty distressing just that idea of like not knowing well we'll check again in a couple of months just like yeah just tell them just like we're done yeah and that's what my school did so yeah. they were I think ahead of it quite a bit. And even good, this academic good decision making year, going on over there. Yeah. Yep. This academic year was let's have 25% of our classes back on campus. That way we can keep everybody socially distanced a lot better mm. in the fall. We're going to aim for 50% in the winter. We're going to 
aim for a hundred percent in the spring, but even that spring, most clock, I, I we're, I'd say we're still at 50% yeah. and that's okay. So it's like we're where it's, we're going to try instead of we're going to do. Yeah. Knowing that that's going to be the more likely scenario I think has helped. Like we can all prepare and everything we've all had our classes set up to where you could go back completely online at a moment's notice if you had to. So for example, I, in my in-person class, the second week of class, I had two students report that they had tested positive for mm -hmm. COVID. And so yeah. it was, my classes are Monday through Thursday. And this was the week before MLK day. And you want that, that five day standard now? Okay, yeah. we're not going to have class on Thursday, so we won't meet Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday for the holiday. There's our five days. We'll be back on Friday. Hopefully nobody else gets a positive test in that time. Yeah, And yeah. nobody did, so we were okay. Oh, good. So... I loved learning, but I hated school. I'm yeah. actually a high school dropout. I dropped out the next to last day of my junior year. And so then I bummed around. What, what kind of school were you going to at the time? Was it like a private school, a religious school or public no, school? No, it was just a normal shitty high school. Just um, school. Okay. I had done high school in Utah. My mom got remarried and moved to Washington. And so I still missed her. So I moved too mm -hmm. and hated it even more than I did before. And so I was like, I'm done. Yeah. I'm out. And so then I bummed around for a while. And then I like started getting serious about writing as an outlet and a passion. Yeah. And not getting published. And so I was like, okay, well, what did I miss? Is there something that I missed in that last year of high school that could have helped me with this? So I aced my GED and I started going to a community college mm -hmm. in Las Vegas. And that was great. And then I got sucked into journalism. <laughs> and so I transferred to a university. Um, I ended up spending more of my time in the newsroom than going to class. So I failed out of college at that point. I've done that before. Yeah. And so then I Cheers. <laughs> couch surfed and got freelance work for a while. Mm -hmm. And then talked my way into a full-time journalism job which was pretty talked and worked my way into a full-time journalism job. Yeah. Yeah. Um, without a bachelor's degree, which doesn't really happen anymore. Right. And so uh, my wife and I were in South Dakota at the time, and then she got a better job back in Washington. So we moved. And Had you guys moved to South Dakota for a job opportunity or were, did, you, did you know people? <laughs> so I knew people, I knew her. Okay. Um, yeah. We worked at the college newspaper together at the University of Idaho and we're mostly acquaintances. Like mm -hmm. we were friendly acquaintances, but we didn't date or anything. Yeah. Yeah. And she graduated and got a job in Rapid City, South Dakota. Okay. And I flunked out and went back to Vegas and couch surfed. And my specialty in journalism was music journalism covering concerts and talking to bands and stuff oh, hell like yeah. that. Oh, hell yeah. That was great. I went 
five years without paying for a concert. Saw all kinds of stuff. And so her job in Rapid City, she was the editor of a special section for the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally. And she needed somebody who could cover concerts. And like, who just sort of knew all the, the rock bands. Like, that's me. And so I drove up there and one thing led to another. We kind of fell in love and uh-huh. got married. <laughs> and I got a full-time job at the paper there in Sturgis. And she was a copy editor in Rapid City. And that was fine for a little while. And the jobs that we had don't exist there anymore. They've all conglomerated because of journalism. Yeah, yeah. And so she yeah, I've got seen a, I've seen the the buildings that have been uh, boarded up, right? as they say, that used to be big writing and distribution centers. And now yeah. everybody just does it from home and it's done much smaller. Yep. So she got a better copy editing job in Washington. They did the paper that she started working at didn't have a spot for me in the newsroom. So I started working at newspaper customer service, which sucked the life out of me. I absolutely hated it. I was going to say, is that where people call in and they're like, Hey, you printed this, but that's not true. Those kind of calls would usually go to the newsroom. I got the call. Your delivery driver threw my newspaper in a puddle. (laughs) <laughs> those were the calls i got at you know four in the morning five in the morning i got the angry the real angry people for no reason and it sucked the life out of me and so i was like if i'm gonna get where i want to be i gotta go finish school yeah um so there was a college nearby a university nearby i managed to get in um they didn't consider me out of state even though we hadn't been there for very long yeah. They took a bunch of my transfer credits, so it only took me a year and a half to finish my bachelor's. Nice. And then I was like, I've really kind of been enjoying this. And so I went right in at the same school and got my master's, just kind of cruised on through and okay. finished and that. what's so your master's in? My master's is in literature. Okay. So I'm like one of the only people actually using their degree in that field both as a writer and a teacher so um yeah when i was going to school for uh bachelors in english everybody was like are you going to be a teacher and i was like yeah (laughs) see and i never really intended that like i love learning and i like talking to people wanting to learn i don't really like people necessarily Yeah, yeah yeah and so it was really odd that that's like kind of what I ended up enjoying so much. So during my during grad school, I got a grad assistantship and I taught one class every quarter of it and I absolutely loved it. And yeah. like, this is fantastic. So that's when I really figured out that yeah, that was something that I could do. That's cool, man. I, I think a lot well I come from a kind of similar educational story. So maybe it's arrogant to say that the best educators have that background, but I think there's something special about an educator that doesn't come from this just blind love of the educational system. You know what I oh, mean? Oh yeah. It, they're they're relatable to a, a more wider spectrum of student. Right. I think that's true for a lot of things. Like people who went right from high school to a four year through everything, that's great for them. Yeah. It's not realistic for a lot of people. Yeah. And so I encounter a lot of first-generation college students 
and a lot of English as a second language students mm. and a lot of non-traditional students, just like I was, Yeah, yeah. who spent a lot of time being told that this was something they couldn't do. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, I tutored at a community college and, uh, while I was going there before I transferred, cause I, I was in the Navy, I flunked out of college, was in the Navy, then started a community college, tutored while I was there. And probably 80% of the people I tutored were non-traditional students. Yeah. And, and, and those are people like they want to be there. Yeah. And I think straight out of high school, college students, you could, you could kind of see it in their eyes, especially in my classes. Like I teach English 101 for the most part. Oh yeah. 101 classes, even at a four-year school, kids will come in there and just completely turn their back on you or fall asleep or whip yep. their phone out right in front of you. Yep. And I try to keep it more engaging, but I still get those students yeah, that are here the, because it's required. I mean, not because even, they want to be. Even Harvard, not all those kids are coming back that next semester. Right. <laughs> you know? And so my 101 class, I figured out pretty early at this particular school that I had a lot of academic freedom. I could yeah. pretty much do, like, as, as long as students meet the educational standards, I can do. I can relay that information to them in any way I want to. Yeah. And so my 101 class is framed around the twilight zone. Huh. And so we get a lot of conversations about critical thinking and mob mentality and logical fallacies. And in the couple of years that I've been doing that, it just becomes more and more relevant every day. Yeah. So like Monday, of the week that we're recording this and I showed the students the Twilight Zone episode called The Obsolete Man, which is about a librarian who's going to be executed because he's useless in the society of this particular episode. I don't is that one of the originals? Yeah. Yeah. I Burgess don't remember Meredith that. One. Is in it. Uh, it's great. Oh, okay, because I immediately when you say Burgess Meredith, I think of the uh guy who goes into the bank vault when the bomb drops right and so you know i finished the class by telling them okay now go watch that episode and see how they relate yeah. and it's fascinating but i show this episode particularly like i have the ones that i show all the time and then the ones that i'll pick based on what's going on and so i showed him that one and gave him the story about book burnings in tennessee of like something that's not happening in the 1940s happening today and be like, here's yeah, this yeah. show. I, I've seen that all over the sixties. Yeah, here's this show from the sixties that is talking about our time right now. And yeah. they just go, Oh my gosh, I can't believe it. Are you sure this is from the sixties? Like it's black and white, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. And just yeah, laws have changed, but mentalities have not yeah. uh, moved at the same speed. Yep. So being able to not only present something that I love, the Twilight Zone. Yeah. And but have it actually mean something to a crop of students who some of them have seen it. Like every now and again, I get a student who says, I used to watch this with my dad when I was a kid. So it's so great to revisit it. But most of them on the that's first day, I, that's where I'd be coming from. Right. Is watching those. My dad was like, oh, watch this, watch this. Wait, wait till the doctors take their masks off. Oh, I showed him that one, too. I of the beholder. Yeah. Oh, it's fantastic. The first one this quarter that I showed him um, because we actually got to do this in class so i could see everybody yeah um, when it's online i say here go watch this one and then i just never know 
how it's going to come off. But this quarter, the first one I showed was to serve man. Yes. Yeah. And so I've seen this a million times. I'm watching the students because like, I want to see their reaction. I want to, I watch them watch essentially. And when the female coder comes out screaming, it's a cookbook. Yeah. One girl in the class, I, she audibly gasped. Oh, shit. Yeah. It's so like, good. It's so yes! subtle. That's a win for me. Yeah. So. Oh, man. That's great. That's, that's even better. I think the most fun I had in a, especially in like one of my one or 200 level classes was, uh, we were doing something with medieval literature and we get to watch Monty Python and the Holy Grail, specifically the scene where they're talking to the peasants and they're like, this is actually a really good depiction of like the difference between peasant life and royal life. <laughs> I use that scene in my discussion of logical fallacies. Yeah. And there's like a dozen in there right from the beginning. You know, King Arthur's assuming that the person he's talking to is an old woman. Yeah. I'm a man and I'm 37. I'm not old. Right. So you get these assumptions based on appearance, you know, ad hominem attacks and all that kind of stuff. Basically what I want to get from these kids is something that happened to me with one of my professors is that you can write academically, you can write scholarly about the things that you've loved. And it doesn't matter what that is. Yeah. And I show them, like I show them all the proof. I show them my academic papers on Stephen King. I show them academic papers about Batman and soccer and video games and sewing and yeah. anything. Like if you have a passion, you should be writing about that. Because if you're writing about something you love, it's going to be better than if I tell you what to write about. Like, yeah. I'm going to show you how to write this because that's my job in this position is to show you how to write certain types of papers for certain audiences, in this case, an academic audience. But that doesn't mean it should all be about the same four subjects. And the yeah. same four <laughs> subjects in English 101 are abortion, gun control, legalizing marijuana, and first amendment and now we get well, like COVID. and i would say both of our states now that third one's off the table it's already gone it's already yeah. done deal and that you know <laughs> so I, that's what i tell them now and so it's like if you're going to write one of those papers you're just going to regurgitate information from decades of bullcrap yeah and unless you can prove to me that you actually have a stake in that and a real passion don't write about it yeah please don't write about it write well, about something you care about my first gen students like students of migrant workers they want to write about immigration issues like yeah fuck yeah i do that because if you get this first taste of writing evidence-based informative papers you're going to be able to go out and actually change the world on this issue, hopefully. Yeah. And so, yes, well, please do that. Even, even to a different extent, maybe it was just because I went to like a small liberal arts college. Maybe I wouldn't have got away with it at a big state university or something, but they would give us 
outlines we want this to be this format and this many pages at least and i remember one time i got a paper that i was supposed to write about evelina and it was supposed to be 10 pages long but i handed it in i was like this is only eight and a half pages but if i added anything else to it it would have just been fluff and he was like i'll look at it and he gave me a 98 he's like i agree we could tell like yeah if you read enough of them you can tell when people are Bubbing the margins, you yeah. Know, like, like I have word lengths. Like, I need you to write at least this much. Yeah. So it doesn't know. matter what what size font you have the periods. <laughs> I still, you know, there are basic formats. Like, stick to this format. Write at least this much. Don't plagiarize, please God. Don't plagiarize, because guess what? I'm gonna know. Yeah. And and that, but like, and that's matter. A, that's like that's like almost one step below like if you see physical violence if you see plagiarism like you have to be like damn it all right now we gotta go tell somebody yeah yep i've had students plagiarize themselves <laughs> wait a minute can you actually get in trouble for that like i know you shouldn't do it but like can you oh yeah because it's academically dishonest like to plagiarize we, yourself oh yeah we expect original work like you should be doing new work Oh, no, class. I see what you're saying, where they're, like, just turning in recycled. Yeah. So I had a student turn in a paper. It was really well written, but I could tell it wasn't at the level of the previous papers that the student had turned in in a quarter. Yeah. Turned out it was a paper that the student had turned in in high school. Uh, it, fit, okay. it fit, like, the basic requirements but was not at the level that it should have been. So like, I kind of instantly knew something was wrong. Okay. And it's like, yeah, 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 yeah it's yeah, a good yeah. paper, but you didn't write this for my class. Yeah. No, and I'm like, a, I'm a dummy. I was thinking that like somebody quoted something that they thought or had written previously, just like in a paragraph and didn't say that I said that. That would <laughs> that'd be harder to catch but i'm sure some people have done that yeah um that doesn't seem as malicious no and like some people will try to turn in in the same quarter a paper for two different classes yeah that's discouraged and most instructors are like please don't do that yeah. my thought on that is i'm trying to teach you skills that you should be able to use in your other classes so if that's what you're going to do you have two things you need to do first you need to tell me and you need to tell the other instructor that that's yeah. what you plan to do and if either one of us says no then don't do it it's like going on a date with two people you gotta let them know hey right before we get serious here because guess who's going to talk to each other yeah me and that other professor hey what they what they turn in and you know we can do that they don't know that like we could talk to each other if we wanted to yeah so People try to get away with the weirdest stuff, but they always get caught eventually. Yeah. They forget that you're not a hologram that just turns on and off in the classroom right. when they appear. <laughs> yeah, they forget that, you know, I read 60 to 80 papers of each one of these assignments every quarter. <laughs> depending carefully, on how many. Carefully. Read yeah. Too. So it's like, I know. <laughs> Speaking of careful reading besides your writing 
besides your academic work, you do uh, do services. That sounds really stupid. You provide <laughs> you provide services to other writers, like you did for me uh, by way of editing. Do you do anything else too? Because I know some people do like formatting or things like that. I don't. That's not in my skill set, unfortunately. Okay. Um, like if something's off, I can say, "Hey, you need to look at this for formatting." So yeah, find yeah. that person. Yeah, like um, you left me a a really good note. Like, just make sure you don't leave this hanging on the formatting with, I think, like a an errant quotation mark or something that was hanging off. Yeah, and those those kind of things just happen in manuscripts, and they might not necessarily transfer into a formatted version. But yeah. you know, it's best to know ahead of time. So yeah. I do provide editing services. Um, I got into that. Like it was something that I kind of was always interested in. Yeah. Um, I got into that at a time when I was unemployed and had a certain skills and needed money, honestly. And so just hustling. Yeah. So I said, Hey, look, I, you know, I made a social media post. Hey, look, I want to try doing this. Here's the stuff that I've done on my own. Yeah. I'm a pretty smart guy. Give me a shot. Yeah. And so I've, writer friend of mine's like yep here you go i just need a proofread okay done boop, 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 boop. and so once you get one and they're happy you're like okay i did one who's next yeah and so by now i think i've done close to two dozen and oh, usually wow. it's um you know people who i interact with on social media and things like that um, or in I my did... case uh the the great and wise Jennifer Susie. I was just asking her, I was like, Hey man, these, these small presses are really just giving me the runaround right now. And I'm kind of sick of it. I'm just going to take, <laughs> take control of this. Who should I get to edit it? And she was like, TJ. And I'm glad she did. <laughs> yeah. Um, me too. And, Likewise. It, and that's it, it was a, a, lot of a, it works a good out. relationship here. Cause you're a very, uh, I should say for anyone who's considering your services, you're a very compassionate editor which I think some people are always worried, like someone's just going to shred their stuff up and make them feel like an asshole for writing it in the first place. But you leave nights, leave nights, leave nice notes throughout the way. Like, Hey, this is a really good idea here, or this is an interesting twist. And it's like, Oh, cool. So even though you're seeing, you know, some one lines and some suggestions that this doesn't make sense, you're also saying, Hey, good job here. I really like this. So that's, you know, on a, on a, on a personal review note there, I found that very encouraging to keep going. Well, that's the whole point. I, as I see it anyway, yeah. um, I want almost basically every writer that I encounter, I want them to succeed just as much as I want to succeed. Yeah. Right. I don't consider anyone competition because we're not, you're not going to write the same story that I'm going to write. Like we might play around in the same genre or play with the same tropes but the stories aren't going to be the same at all because we all come from different backgrounds and different yeah, experiences. Yeah, hopefully they're not the same. We're all yeah. different people. We all talk differently. We all have different thoughts, different sense of humor. And so that kind of encouragement is important. Like, yeah. also, I don't edit for free. Yeah. I want you to be able to continue. If I just told you a bunch of everything that was wrong and didn't encourage you in any way, you're just going to quit. I don't yeah. want that, right? Yeah, I want to yeah, be yeah. able to provide an actual service to where you go, okay, I can keep doing this. Yeah. Because yes, it helps me, but it's not about me, right? It's not my name on the front of that book. 
when it comes down to it at the end of the day. So what do I gain by being an asshole? <laughs> a reputation for being an asshole. Yeah. And I don't want that. So well, unless you become so in demand, then you can become an asshole and just say that it's all part of your creative genius that you're just <laughs> so elevated that you're hard to deal with. Yeah. yeah. That's not really my personality. <laughs> I'm trying to be much more easygoing than that. But also, I love stories. Yeah. Reading stories. And if I like something, I'm going to say so. And it's just as valuable to see where things are working than where they're, where they're not. Yeah, for sure. You know, so if I make a comment like that, and this has happened, and you know, it's up to each individual writer's style. Like sometimes you gotta you take a chance on saying something as an editor that maybe doesn't resonate as much as you want it to. But if I make a comment to say something's nice and the writer tells me you don't need to flatter me, <laughs> it's not about that at all for me. It's me saying this is something you did well and do that more yeah not necessarily don't do this other stuff that's also working but this particular thing wow that really works yeah like this is like a signature moment that's amazing yeah because i'm still even when i'm editing i'm still a reader first and so sometimes yeah, it takes me a little longer to get one of these projects done because i read the whole thing first yeah because when I'm putting on that editor hat again, I don't want to be as distracted by the story. So I read the whole thing first before I even make a mark. Yeah. And I don't know that everybody does that. I, can, I can't really speak to how other people do their freelance editing and things like that. But that's how I do it because I care about the success, right? Yeah. I want you to write another book. Well, I mean, maybe that's also a very academic way to to review a piece of literature too, right? Is to first just read it and then read it again with a with a pen or a pencil in hand. Yep. Yeah. And you know, sometimes you remember the things, sometimes you you see things then you that you didn't see that first time and that's honestly that's part of the job. Yeah. I think just just as much so as you notice new things when you watch a movie a second time. Like <laughs> I love The Big Lebowski, but I love Shaun of the Dead too, even more so because that's a movie that every time you watch it, you notice something new. Right. Yep. <laughs> Just the little things. Yeah. And, you know, that's what makes movies rewatchable are those yeah. little kind of things. And I love them. Yeah. Those guys put so much that I, I've heard, um, I heard a writer named Stephen James speak about um, something he wrote a book about, which is called Story over structure or something like that and basically says like don't worry too much about the structure of your story or thinking too deep into the future just write from scene to scene and kind of build as you go um but you but, can fix that other kind of stuff if your yeah. story sucks that's harder to fix yeah yeah but that movie in particular kind of makes me think well there's definitely a place for somebody who really thinks that hard about the the structure of a story too and i was reading um oh gosh italo calvino's uh on a winter's night a traveler and that's another book where he was just doing some weird stuff with structure and i don't know you can make interesting stories around odd structuring 
but I but if prefer the, the writers who I've heard say, I just write as I go and fix as I need to. Right. I do story beats. Like I don't do a full outline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Story beats and sketches. And yeah. they very rarely turn out the same. Yeah. So, so I'm going to show you document A here. <laughs> these are these are some bullet points. And I used all but one of them to write these last, you know, five, six pages. Right. Exactly. And that's about how, as far as I go, is in terms of planning in the future. Well, I do, I figured out that that novella length really works for me. Yeah. So my scene sketches are probably 12, 12 to 15. Like, here are the scenes that I need. How do I get from one to two to three to four to five? Oh, crap. I need something in between there. Four and a half, seven, eight, nine. Yeah. And then like with Tell No Man, I found those notes. I had misplaced because I moved in between. I misplaced oh, the notebook buddy. that I had those in. And so when I was finishing it and I went back and went, that's not what I planned right there. Yeah. And that's okay. Because this is better. Yeah. So yeah. if I had done that, I would have had these other complications with another character that I didn't need. And we just moved along. So I think that like that 12 scene, you know, and sometimes that turns into chapters, like here's everything that's going to happen in a chapter. Yeah. And sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. So that's a little more process kind of stuff. But what's great about doing that is that I don't have to be at my desk in my writing zone to do that. Yeah. Um, I wrote most of the scene sketches for tell no man while I was in a church service, not paying really? attention. <laughs> I had my already, little notebook. You already uh, checked all the spelling and grammar in the church program. Now I'm going to write a story. Right. Like I'm, I'm listening and it looks like I'm taking notes about the sermon, but I'm actually writing my story. And everybody's of. happy. Yeah. It worked <laughs> out for me. I'm yeah. pretty sure the sermon is good. Yeah. Nobody was know. booing and hissing. Nobody pays attention to me. Like that's I tell other people that nobody's here to see me. It's okay. My wife asks me that. Are you gonna wear that? Nobody's looking at me. Yeah. Doesn't matter. And if they are, they're missing the point. If they are, like if we're out in public somewhere and somebody goes, What is that guy wearing? Like they got their problems of their own. Like yeah. you notice me? No, nobody's looking at me. Like <laughs> you mentioned earlier, I just done a play. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's talk about that, too. I did this play, Wait Until Dark, uh, which is most famous for being an Audrey Hepburn movie in the late 60s. And ah, I played... I need to catch up on my vintage uh, Oh, it's movies. a good one. It's yeah. a good one. Alan Arkin is the villain. And he's, you know, he's super young at the time. Yeah, he's yeah, in yeah. the 60s. And so I play the husband character. I have one big scene. And it's stage. So you still have to do some stage makeup so that you don't oh, yeah. look like it's... some weird freak. And I don't know about you, but I've, like, the stage makeup that I've seen, when you see somebody up close with stage makeup, it's horrifying. They, look, they look like they're dead and they've been, like, 
yeah, yeah. given the worst <laughs> the worst funeral parlor treatment ever right but then without it you go on stage and that's also what you look like it's so yeah. weird <laughs> with the lights so my stage makeup was very basic i didn't have to do a lot which was great and it's like my wife would ask me so did they say anything about your makeup nope not a word nobody cares <laughs> they're not looking at me they're yeah. looking at the the woman playing my wife she's the star of the show plus in that play half of the time i'm on stage is in the dark lights are not i'm not forward facing most of the time like nobody's looking at me nobody cares and that's fine like you need those kind of people yeah well that that attitude sounds a lot to me like um some musicians that have interviewed i interviewed a drummer for from heartsick who i went and saw this last weekend and uh he was like yeah i don't really do solos at the show like if the band ever was like hey play one i would but and he, that same kind of a mentality that that I think actors have, where it's like it's not about my performance; it's about what my performance does for the overall performance. Yeah, yep. And in my limited acting career, I did a bunch of theater in high school, um, and then yeah, I didn't I was do... say, is that kind of where you started? Was high school, yeah. middle school? Yep. And then I did one show that a friend of mine wrote when I was 21. And then I didn't do anything again until my 40s, until I turned 40. Mostly because I just moved around so much. I didn't have time trying to do jobs. I was going to say, I lost track of how many different states you lived in. (laughs) All of them. In the West, anyway. In the West. And so, like, just those, those opportunities never came up. And so the pre-pandemic a couple of years ago, um, my wife decided that she wanted to go audition for a play. She got into the choir of a play and had a great time. And then the same theater said, we're doing murder on the Orient Express. Oh, cool. Like we're into a murder mystery. That's the kind of play I want to be in. Yeah, Yeah. And so I went and auditioned, you know, knowing that, the way the script was and the casting call was that they were going to have the same person play Colonel Arbuthnot, the Scottish Colonel who is actually the only person in the play that gets a love interest <laughs> and the bad guy ratchet. Um, so if you see in the, the seventies version, it's Sean Connery's the Scottish Colonel. Yeah. yeah. Like, back in high school, I had a pretty mean Sean Connery impersonation. It's not so good anymore. <laughs> But I go and audition and I whip out the good Scottish brogue. I act menacing enough for the bad guy and like, and I get the part, right? The parts, essentially. So like, okay, this is great because the previous play that I'd done in my 20s, in my early 20s, um, my friend who wrote it, like he wrote this whole musical, actually. Yeah. I didn't have to sing because I can't sing worth darn. <laughs> um, he wrote it so that we had four actors in 16 parts. It was six different characters in this one play. <laughs> and so our set was built so that it was an apartment. You would go through one door that was the bathroom, you'd be backstage and you would change costume. You'd come in through the front door of the apartment as a different character. And so I had done this before, playing multiple characters in the same show. Yeah. And so when it came to 
doing this murder on the Orient I would, Express. I would be worried that I would have one of those Mrs. Doubtfire moments where you just walk out and say the wrong thing in the wrong costume. Thankfully, that never happened to me, right? <laughs> so I do this mur- murder on the Orient Express, and one costume is a suit because I'm a gangster. Like, I'm a bad guy. And my other costume is kilt. And so having to do those quick changes, like I actually had three people helping me change costume backstage, which was pretty wild. And then the great moments are when the characters, when multiple characters and there's moments where they have to interact with each other. So in the previous one I had done, I had a scene where I'm one character rifling through this apartment, talking to another one of my characters who's, in the bathroom and we just pre-recorded the off-screen dialogue oh okay which was great and then i you was get gonna to, say do you have to like hide your face in nah, we, we pre-recorded that yeah yeah and so for this murder on the orient express we do the show and at the end of the show i'm my bad guy character he's dead you don't see him anymore um i got to play dead while being like forensically examined <laughs> It was pretty fun. I'm like trying not to laugh because people are saying funny things that I can't say. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm dead. Yeah. And so at the end of the show, we would go meet the audience, right? And the first night I come down with everybody and we're still in costume because, you know, they want to meet people right away. Yeah. And somebody's shaking hands with everybody says, so where's the dead guy? I'm right here. <laughs> the, 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 the guy was me no no you were the scottish guy yeah i was also the dead guy no that guy had black hair and you're a redhead i wore a wig <laughs> no you're the scottish guy say something in scottish well you know it's i can't really i gotta like get into those kind of characters so i can't really do it right now but i would say something they're like okay now say a line from the other guy and i would I'm like, oh are you sure are you sure you're you <laughs> yeah and this was actually something that i'm quite proud of that say, that's, a that's a better compliment than somebody just saying nice job yeah, that yeah. was you yeah and so this is back in high school um, i did the play you can't take it with you old play from the thirties and I played a Russian and in high school, again, I was really proud of accents. Like I could do an accent like better than anybody in the school. And so I played this Russian and at the end of the show, again, you meet people, these Russian exchange students from another school had come over with a friend and started talking to me in Russian. I have no idea what you're saying. (laughs) I just pulled on the accent. I got, I could do this one right now. I don't want you to be Olympics. I could do the Russian accent. And then Hi, I'm glad you like the show. I have no idea what you're saying. <laughs> and so this play that I just finished, I was one character. I wasn't the bad guy. I'm usually the bad guy. Like bad guys are my thing. Yeah. And so I got to just the sit horror around author. For a imagine while. that. <laughs> yeah. Like I've never been a lead. Like I've never been the star. And that's also one of the reasons I really turned back to writing after high school was because I wanted to be able to do everything. Like I wanted to direct, but I also wanted to set design. Yeah. But I also wanted to act and I wanted to be in charge of the music. 
yeah. and I wanted to not just act, but I wanted to be every role. And that's not entirely possible to be able to do everything like that. Yeah. But if I'm the writer, I'm writing a short story, I'm writing a novel. I am all those things. Yeah, for sure. I am the director because I'm the one pointing the reader where to look. Mm-hmm. And I am the actor of every role because I have to speak all those lines. Yeah. Essentially. Like, I don't read them out loud while I'm writing them. I've heard some writers some say that they do. read every word out loud as they're writing it just to hear it or, you know, right after they read it. I don't know. That seems nope. too tedious. Yeah. But I'm also, you know, production designer. Everything that's that you need to see, I have to put on this on the set, essentially. Yeah. And so yeah, yeah. writing gives me the opportunity if I continued as an actor, or even if I like, got into film or stage directing, I wouldn't be able to do all those things. I would have to like collaborate with other people. I don't like other people. Yeah. I don't want to do that. <laughs> I just want to sit in my room and do everything and hope somebody likes it. It's taken longer than I thought it would, but that's okay. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I think essentially what you're saying is all writers have a God complex. They just have a healthy outlet for it. <laughs> Most of us. I think there are some who, who whose complex isn't quite as healthy as others. Yeah. Like, like I consider myself kind of a weird guy also, but I don't live my characters and I'm not out to like, freak people out yeah you know i had a goth you don't just yell boogity 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 at people no right <laughs> um and it's not like it's not like the stephen king thing where he kind of looks like a normal guy sort of but he also looks like a weird rabid chipmunk yeah um, very i think john grisham once said he's very exotic looking yeah <laughs> but you wouldn't necessarily look at him and go wow that dude killed a bunch of people on the page right yeah and i kind of want that same thing like there's a level of normal anonymity yeah that writers get that other people don't get yeah for sure like most of the people who read my books not that there's a lot of them yet like don't necessarily know what i look like yeah yo i look like the author photo because that's me but i don't look like that all day long I dressed up for that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I shaved for that, combed my <laughs> hair for that. Right. I tried to look good for that. Yeah. Yeah. And day to day, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, so there is that ego in the process and in the product, but not necessarily in the day to day for me. Yeah. Like, I like to pretend sometimes that I'm a bigger deal than I am. Yeah, sure. Just because it's fun. Yeah. But it doesn't mean anything. Right. Like, if if I get somebody who's, like, much more well-known than I am as a Twitter follower, I'll laugh and I'll tell my wife, like, hey, guess who's following me now? Isn't that awesome? But I also know at the end of the day, it doesn't necessarily mean anything. Yeah. You know, I've gotten some, I've made some pretty great friends from social media yeah. in the writing community and the horror community. And I've gotten to do some pretty cool things. Very supportive from stuff like that. A lot of people would probably think that writers time, are more like, no, no, no. If you're reading their book, then you're not going to read my book, but very, very cool. Like just out to help each other, promote each other people. Yeah. And see, and the thing is, that's not true. 
the majority of readers don't just read one author, right? They want to read other things that are like that. Yeah. Or they want to read what that author has read. Yeah. And so well, even if they want to read just that author, they'll get to a point where they read it all run out. Right. (laughs) Well, I guess I'm done now. Right. It's like eventually, hopefully not too soon. Eventually Stephen King is going to die. We have to live with that, that he is going to die and I'm going to cry and reread stuff i i'm one of those people who does reread books yeah yeah um but there's still a limit you know we're gonna like you see behind me i got a i got a jack kerouac poster back oh, here yeah. he's not writing any new work nope everything that he's done is there so who else do we read like we read other people who his work influenced and things like that right yeah and that's what we have to do and so if we're not supportive like that, A, you become an asshole. <laughs> Don't read theirs. Read this. Yeah. Like, no, I'm saying like, oh, you liked that? You might like this. Yeah, yeah. And not necessarily always my own stuff, right? Because I know that my stuff isn't for everybody. I know people who prefer just to read like super extreme horror, right? The splatterpunk guys. Yeah. And a lot of those people are my friends too. And I love them. <laughs> I don't write like that yeah. at all. So we all need each other because readers need variety. Also, I'm an old white man and we need other people besides me. I was going to say, you don't know, call yourself we, old. I'm, I'm like a year younger than you are. <laughs> <laughs> the play I just did, uh, I had a meeting with the director one day and I told him how long it had been between shows that I had done and how old I was. And he sat right deadpan right across from me, like, you're not that old. No way. You're not that old. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, before I got my teaching position, I did some emergency substitute teaching. And I did a day at a high school. And I don't remember what I said, but one of the kids said, yeah, I know. You're, you're like, what, 27? <laughs> Thanks. That makes me feel nice. Yeah. No, I'm not. <laughs> well, you know, that's like, add like a decade. They, people always used to, I remember adults saying to kids who like looked way younger than everybody else. Like, you're going to appreciate that when you get older. <laughs> I don't No. <laughs> Maybe I should, but it's like, no, I earned this. <laughs> yeah. I lived every day of this life. Do you see these stress and... lines? Yeah. Like, my hair is okay. I'm not. I'm not going bald or anything, but all of this nice little red hair on the on the face here. Yeah. All of this is turning white. Mm. Like redheads don't go gray. Yeah. We just go white, <laughs> and so I'm going to be Santa Claus in a few years. Mine too. Except I'm going to be the skinny Santa Claus because like the only person who lost weight during the pandemic. <laughs> My wife hates that. Good for you, man. Yeah, I just started that fast i've been losing weight too but i've also been getting dizzy when i stand up too fast (laughs) Mm. (laughs) so you win some you lose some i guess um right well yeah man is there anything else that we should talk about before we uh start wrapping up future projects (laughs) yeah 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 yeah
what's coming is the third part of the unintended trilogy that makes up Cry Down Dark and Tell No Man called Lamentations of Blackhawk ah. uh, coming in October from Madness Art Press. Um, I, the plan right now is to do a hardcover omnibus of the three books and then a paperback solo of it shortly afterward. Um, and then after that... That sounds awesome. I'm looking forward to it. It's pretty great. Um, readers are going to be happy and pissed <laughs> reading it, which is a great place for me to be. After that, I'm working on a nonfiction book right now about the movie Footloose, which was filmed in my hometown in Utah and that general area. Got that nice contract signed and things are progressing. So summer is going to be a lot of research. Yeah and hometown visits for that and probably a lot of watching uh, and re-watching footloose which is great i love that movie yeah it's fun and plus i get to watch it and go home home you should you should make a um, podcast and you should watch that movie with like 16 different, different people, people and just <laughs> yeah get all their takeaways from it <laughs> maybe what a, maybe closer to the release of the book is like promo yeah yeah and so those are the things that are actively in progress. Um, I'm going to write a Western in the same sort of Utah universe as my other books. Is it going to be um, like straight Western or is it going to be kind of a genre bender? It's the outline that I made for it is the bloodiest thing I've ever written. <laughs> Just that outline honestly is the most gruesome thing i've ever written it's your rambo too yeah really it is um right from the beginning and so i think it's going to be hyper violent like that so it started out as um a pitch for one of those splatter westerns yeah. that are really popular right now um it probably won't be as gratuitously extreme as those but it's still going to be pretty bloody. Yeah, you're not going to pull any punches. So, no, no. So, so I have notes for that, and after that, honestly, I don't know. Um, I have another nonfiction project that has been percolating for a long time, and if somebody actually said yes, here's some money, finish that, then I would move that up. Yeah. Um, it's a project called the Great American Horror Novel. Mm really academic pro project of me reading a bunch of american horror novels and deciding which one is the best because hmm. like english majors do this for like no moby dick is the great american horror novel yeah yeah no the wizard of oz is the great american horror novel no it's philip roth american pastoral and like most of that is bullshit um in my opinion <laughs> um and that's from somebody with a degree in this so i'm allowed to say that yeah and so I was like, I could take all of this same kind of academic leaning and apply it to horror novels. I'd be like, here's why these matter in the grand scheme, not just for fans, but for literature. Yeah. Like these aren't just junk books. They actually matter. In a lot of ways, they matter and resonate more than the quote unquote literary canon because people reading the literary canon are 
stuffy assholes. And um, I've sort of made it my academic mark is not being a stuffy asshole. Yeah. I like to consider myself a lowbrow snob. A lowbrow snob. Be like, this stuff, like not to the level of like Troll 2 is a great movie, man. Like, no, no, it's not. Um, but being like, you know, Shirley Jackson is just as good as anybody else yeah. ever. Yeah. Right. And also taking the opposite things and saying to people, Toni Morrison's beloved is a horror novel yeah. and I will fist fight you. It absolutely is. <laughs> it's a zombie yeah. novel. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and saying and like getting the valid, a lot of validity has happened for that in the time that I've been working on it. Like yeah. Stephen Graham Jones went in a big literary prize for the only good Indians and things like that. So it'll happen. You know, I just kind of need somebody else to say, yeah, go do that for real. Cause all most of the work, yeah. like all the research, essentially like i have a few more books on my list to read but all the research has been done it's really the kind of thing where i just would have to sit and put it together so hmm. that could be a podcast too but nobody's paying me for that <laughs> i want to get paid <laughs> i like teaching but i'd love to not have to yeah does that make sense yeah yeah yeah, yeah i i was there with you too i actually i would have kept teaching but my wife just kept getting pregnant it was really annoying we stopped at one. <laughs> one. We we decided to stop at three and then stopped at four. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that allowed me the time once I uh, switched gears to staying at home to, to write and then writing led to this podcast, all of which led to me getting out there into uh, the writing community deeper and meeting people like you. So it all worked out. It's been fun. You meet a lot of cool people. Like you mentioned earlier, Jennifer Susie. Yeah. Um, she's great. She, I met her like we've never met in person, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, but she was one of the people signed to that publisher that had tell no man and clothes. So that's kind of, oh, where our yeah, relationship yeah. Started. I had actually made a note about that when you said it, um, because she was telling me the same story on her podcast of like, they already made a cover for her and, paid her in advance and then they went out of business yep but it was a good contract so we didn't have to pay him back yeah yeah no she she said they were more like apologetic than trying to get their money oh back. yeah no the dude felt horrible like and he had really good reasons to close it down you know and honestly it was right before pandemic yeah so we probably would have been had worse situations forced upon us if that decision hadn't been made before that yeah so it was actually probably good timing yeah things There's things that. tend to work life out. happens yeah yep life happens well tj the lowbrow snob <laughs> thanks <laughs> for uh, business cards with that yeah you absolutely should i might even title the episode that i don't know um <laughs> but yeah man uh it's been a uh, great meeting you and uh having professional interactions and finally getting to actually talk to you on the podcast. Thanks for coming on and talking. Right. Thank you for having me and essentially still letting me come on after not being able to. Yeah. So. Well, I aired, I aired it on the one episode. It's like TJ was supposed to be on <laughs> life. Yep. Sick kids. It happens. Things pile up. It happens. Yep. I don't always get mine out on Mondays. Like I say, I'm going to either. So, well, Hey man, Thank you so much. Um, I will make sure that all your links to social media, books, everything else that uh, you want 
gets put into the show notes and this one will be out next monday excellent look forward to it awesome thank you tj thank you chris bye-bye have a good one jason says bye-bye too <laughs> bye <laughs> all right everybody thanks for listening check out tj tranchel on all his socials on amazon where you can buy his books and at tjtranchel.net all the links are in the show notes thanks for listening see you guys later Yeah, man. Yeah, man. Weird, right?